Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Intermezzo number nine. I'm David Getson. Unfortunately, Alonzo Toledo is not able to be with us today. However, we had email from a longtime member, Carl, who wrote some really remarkable observations and responses to our previous discussion on analogy. The idea of being able either to understand the present or how things are developing by looking at the past, and this begins simply as knowing that the sun will rise and set or the seasons come and go. However, it gets as complex as trying to understand the development of art and architecture, or even the rise and fall of civilizations. Hi, David. The first thing that comes to mind when you talk about the sun setting and rising as a given is, of course, human induction. That's a different problem from analogy. Of course, by induction, I mean the derivation of general principles from specific instances, which would be the opposite of deduction. So with induction, you're going from general principles to specific instances. Yes, exactly. And that is what you need when you go from theory to practice. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why this relates directly to art and architecture is that you always have a dialogue. And by the way, this is why dualism is important, but that's another kettle of fish. You are always dealing with a process of going from a concept to realization. You're starting with general concepts, the idea for a building, a need for a building, and then the specific instance of what actually happens. The instantiation of that building within the world. Exactly. And that mm -hmm. fundamentally has to do with induction. Now, speaking about history in the broad cyclical expanse in which we do, I think we are not so much deducing from history as inducing from it. So it's a particular approach to historiography as well. Correct. I think that we're not trying to come to a deductive conclusion, but we are trying to understand specific instances or specific conclusions by learning from the previous examples. And I think that is how the analogies become useful, because you apply the analogy to induction in that way. But you're basically trying to establish not so much analogies in that sense as much as patterns. You try to see patterns in history, and you can't say, oh, this pattern is going to repeat every 500 years. But you do see trends in the shape that history takes. One of the most important aspects of inductive reasoning is that it is probabilistic. It does not deal with axioms that deduction is better at sorting. And part of this flexibility is that it lets you get useful conclusions out of places where you know there will always be uncertainty. Oh, I would rather call them useful inconclusions in that sense. Oh, sure, sure. Use induction does work as a strange loop. We were mentioning that in a yes. recent episode. And I think induction is a great example of how that operates. Yes, knowledge that remains inconclusive but nonetheless useful. And famously, two of these areas of epistemological uncertainty are arts and architecture as well as history, with, of course, each affecting the other. Yes, indeed. 
But then again, like Carl notes, there is a problem of scale. If you take, say, architecture, it is such a minute aspect in the configuration of history. It would be like a symptom in your WebMD. Anything could be cancer and none of the above symptoms could be. So you wind up in one of those hotspots. I think that's important to note that it is not the architecture or the art that's driving anything, but the architecture and the art are symptoms of a greater life and death process. Yes. I'm disinclined to use symptoms because it's so Lacanian. And I'm more inclined to use shapes. I mean, a living thing has a certain shape and a certain behavior. A dying thing has a certain shape and a certain behavior. We're analyzing the symptoms that translate into shapes. There are symptoms that translate into other things. And we do intercept with some of those as well, but we tend to work with shape. Our member Carl says the idea of a cyclic history is very apt and suggestive, but I think it needs a lot of context to pull it off. We certainly agree. He says, we could throw in with Yeats and describe a rigid 2,000-year gyre with loads of arcana behind us. We could go with Spengler and the almost hylomorphic civilizational organism that lives and dies in a predictable time span. And if you listen to us, you certainly know how much sympathy we have with that. But when he speaks about a predictable time span, a possible time span rather than predictable in the hard sense. So we're speaking about a strong and and, and weak induction rather than a certainty that in so much times this will, we intuit that we are in a decline and we have reasons to postulate so history may prove us right or wrong. Certainly. We're not saying this in a sort of hard conclusive way. We do, however, think of history as a strange loop. Yes, and by that, I think I should say that we mean something that has a reflexive property to it. This is something that was brought up in the most recent episode about uh, the concept of a matrix where you have an element which is going to take an action which will affect something, and that action in the effect reflects back on the thing itself Yes. And continues. So in it's self reflective. Perpe- yeah. In that sense, this is a. That's what we mean by strange loop. In this sense, what we're talking about is also a very Hegelian take on history. I think Hegel was very much about that. You can think of the Hegelian dialectic as imagining how the phenomenology of spirit would actually move through history, that you have thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. And mm-hmm. it actually makes this very nice pyramidical triangle. And then. If you imagine an axis going forward in time and then left and right for thesis and antithesis, it makes a very beautiful figure eight pattern. But it's like tango. I mean, you learn those steps, but then history leads and you follow at its pace. You can anticipate the movement, but the movement itself is perpetrated by history. At one point, Carl asks us about how Egypt managed to be such a static culture for so long. He kind of answers his own question with, uh, we think, a really brilliant point about Baron Montesquieu. Mm-hmm. Because Montesquieu was writing about how southern empires were the natural state of things in warm climates. And you'd have small city-states where it was cold because of how climate affected people. If you had seasons and people needed to be close together, you couldn't travel long distances over several years easily without the winter cutting off your supplies. Just think about the logistics train of keeping an army fed if you're in northern Europe before modern technology. Even in Greece or Italy, it's difficult. If you're in Mesopotamia, if you're in Persia, if you're in Egypt, it's easier. 
And of course, from our present day perspective, that seems a bit facile. It definitely seems outdated. But the very important thing is that he is tying climate and environment. Uh, Montesquieu was, was looking at climate and the, uh, we're talking about, starting to talk about this with Paul Clay. He's talking about the Umwelt environment, not in the sense of a natural environment that must be kept from damage, but environment in the sense of surrounding. Yes, there's no pristine environment. I mean, we're all post-lapsarian, nature included. <laughs> but I think, you know, you don't only have the Umwelt in the sense of clay. I was going to mention Bonixul. Yes, it's very related to Konrad von Uxkirl. And so this is a preview of what we have coming up within the Paul Clay essay. I had mentioned that very influential chart. Well, whether Konrad von Uxkrul saw Paul Clay's essay or not, if he saw the essay, it's remarkable that his own research followed it. If he didn't, it's remarkable that their ideas were independently falling into the same conclusions because they were drawing a very, very similar diagram of this type of strange loop dynamic that we've been talking about. To touch back on what Carl wrote about Egypt, to bring it back with what Montesquieu said about climate, which is a subset of Umwelt, the reason Egypt was so long-lasting, Egypt has a remarkably stable environment. Eugene Weber, in his wonderful television survey course called The Western Tradition, talks about how it's hard to imagine a more perfect place for a civilization where mm -hmm. you have a narrow band of fertile land, which requires people to work together and be inventive. If you're living in the savanna, you don't need civilization because mm -hmm. everything's there. It floods at a periodic, predictable time. And again, with analogy, it's because the rhythms were so exact that the Egyptians were among the first that we know of civilizations to make a correct analogy between the stars and the earth. There's another element which has to do with the Egyptians being one of the first, if not the first people who had a written official history. The scribes consigned this history and in a way they turned their history, which should have been inductive into a deductive procedure where everything followed its logic and the pharaoh was this figure that recycled itself. And so they cast this order, this deductive order on an inductive setting. And they gave it this rhyme and reason that they based everything on, everything else on. Their periodicity and their system of government and their hereditary practices and their religion. And so it was a sort of closed world treatment where everything was ritualized and, and everything had its procedural explanation. It's easier with that kind of mythos to sustain a civilization for as long as possible. It's the minute you introduce competing narratives that we start having trouble. If you had an insurrection in Egypt, it was going to be suppressed and not written about. History was literally written and sustained by the victors. Correct, which is exactly why the Hyksos was portrayed as it was. It's exactly. why the Battle of Kadesh, which is one of the few things where we have the independent sources, Yes. You can see how the Egyptians were treating it propagandistically, and honestly, the Hittites as well. Of but course. this idea that you need to create this mythos in which you formalize the strange loops that you're seeing, well, the Egyptians had a word for it. They called it ma'at. Yes, indeed. This was the divine justice of the universe, of which the pharaoh was both arbiter and the 
actualization embodiment. Of... Yes, he was the consistent actualization, and it looped into the next pharaoh. Right, and they intermarried amongst themselves. So there was a sort of inbred logic. This is why it would make complete sense to an Egyptian to call the pharaoh Horus or yes. Osiris. Of course. You could have, say, for example, a very ornery Greek go up to an <laughs> Egyptian and say, wait a minute, you're telling me that this man whom you know is going to die, you know that his father is going to die, and you are saying he is a god? The yes. Greeks were, in that sense, closer to us and that they saw this great separation between all men and the gods, except for ancestry. You know, you could, you could be a descendant again, you of Heracles. But then again, you had the kings, you have uh, the thaumaturgic kings of Europe who were whose ancestors were supposed to have been invested with healing hands and magical powers. And so their divinity and their power was earned and deserved in a hereditary way. And then you also had the sort of post-imperial kickback here in the Americas when we shook off the Spanish or the Portuguese. You had us trying to figure out our own identities and saying, okay, we're going to slowly start to install an official history. This is the story of our independence. These are heroes. These are myths. And there's a lot of make-believe in there that forms a sort of bedrock for a national identity. This is more for northern South America than for Peru, but all you have to do is uh, look at portraits of Simón Bolívar. Yeah. And you can see that he was, uh, he was very keen to portray himself as the Napoleon of South America. Oh, he but, was, absolutely. You know, I would he, say so without reservations. Yes, of course. The truth is a concoction, especially in historical terms. And so what we're trying to serve you here is with a, with a brew that you could find interesting and different from the one you've been regularly fed. Especially because in some place where, despite the fact that everybody knows that there's no hard and fast truth when you're talking about what you should remember or what you should build with architecture, if it were, there would never be any arguments about it. If there were, we'd already know what to build. There would be no architects. No decisions would need to be made. So there is no hard and fast truth. Nonetheless, there is received wisdom. There is there stuff is. that is treated as gospel, and that is honestly what is the target of our critique so very often that we want to open something again as we're doing with the Bauhaus lately and say, ah, hold on, re-examine this. Is this really the bastion of what we think modernism is? Well, sure, that stuff's in there, but ah, hold on. Paul Clay talking about the Umwelt in a way that even if Archigram hadn't come across it was this cybernetic system. And I'm not sure if you will agree with this at all, but there's also the fact that sometimes... Some truths are truer than others. I agree with that completely. Well, that has to do with multivalent logic, which is one of my favorite concepts. And it's induction-friendly. Yes, well, because it has to do with probability. Yes. I would agree there. And uh, possibility. And so we're exploring some of the avenues that are possible for architecture and history and the points at which they intersect. The more data we can inscribe into those sets, the better. And I think that's why we're very grateful to listeners like Carl, who are contributing to the conversation. He's not alone. There are many others. And of course, uh, we want to extend a big thank you to everybody listening here now and in the future. We have a lot more great stuff coming up. 
All right. We'll be seeing you next week with our second episode on Paul Clay. Certainly Paul Clay part two.